0: Good evening. Good to see each one of you as we've gathered here midweek to uh, worship our God, to study His Word. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to be in the book of Titus this evening and looking at uh, what Paul wrote to Titus and what he wrote to us through God uh, as well. We're going to worship God now as we gather into His presence through song, and then we're going to study His Word. So I invite you to stand and let's worship our God who saves us. so thankful for for all that you've done for us and so tonight we give you thanks with me.
1: Good evening. Good to see you here tonight, and uh, thank you also those of you who are online, and you are joining us tonight as well. Uh, I am uh, Fred Butcher, and uh, I'm an elder here at this church, and I'm filling in for Pastor Kerry, who is playing guide to his son Jonathan, who happened to get a bull tag, and uh, so anyway they're out there chasing the elk. I heard that they, um, well they saw a whole herd on private property. And, of course, they couldn't hunt those. And so I, they just, I was told tonight that they found or they saw a few cows on, uh, on public property. So they're going to go check those out tomorrow. So anyway, that's kind of a little bit of what's happening with Pastor Kerry. And uh, anyway, we pray that uh, the Lord will bless his time. So let's uh, turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we're grateful to be here tonight. We want to thank you, Lord, that you are such an awesome God. Lord, just thank you that you allow us to come and worship you. Thank you, God, that you have given us your word that reveals who you are, reveals who we are, and, uh, Lord, reveals the great blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you guide us tonight as we study this book of Titus. Um, Lord, uh, uh, I just feel like such an unworthy servant to be able to proclaim the vastness of your word, the magnificence of your word. Lord, it's uh, really true that... Uh, that we hold this treasure in, uh, in clay vessels. So, Lord, we just pray tonight that uh, you would be glorified by what we do here. Well, Titus is uh, three chapters long, it's 46 verses. I don't think I've ever preached on 46 verses at one time in my life. <laughs> so, anyway, we'll see how this goes here tonight. So, uh, Titus, if you'll uh, turn there in your Bibles, uh, Titus is what we call a pastoral epistle. It's one of the epistles that the Apostle Paul had written to his protege, Titus. He also wrote two uh, books to Timothy, who was also uh, one of his proteges. But Titus, as we'll see here, seems to be a troubleshooter for the Apostle Paul. Uh, The Apostle Paul would send him to churches that uh, had a difficult time. He was uh, sent there, in a sense, to kind of reboot them. And so uh, he was first sent to Corinth. And um, uh, he worked there. Of course, we know that uh, Corinth was a very carnal church. And now in Titus, he is sent to the island of Crete. We have no mention of Paul ever going to Crete. uh, But yet he, as an apostle, uh, I think that he felt that he was responsible for perhaps all churches at the time. And um, uh, I, I don't really believe in a pope but uh, the Apostle Paul, if there was anything close to being a Pope, I, I think that he probably would be that. He says in another place that he had the weight of all the churches upon him. And so anyway, he had taken responsibility at least to uh, correct the things that were wrong in the church at, at uh, Crete. Um, it is believed to have been uh, written after Paul was released from prison in Rome. Uh, we, in Acts, it takes us all the way through to his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, This uh, was written after that. Um, He asked Titus, uh, later we'll see, to join him in Nicopolis. Uh, Now, Nicopolis is a city in Macedonia on the uh, western shore. And it's kind of across the, let's see, not, yeah, the Adriatic, the, anyway, across the sea from the boot of Italy. And uh, so it's on the opposite side of Macedonia from Philippi and Thessalonica. And so um, it is believed that he is probably there because that's where he asked Titus to join him when he comes. Um, <clears throat> Titus is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, uh, mostly in 2 Corinthians, twice in Galatians, and once in 2 uh, Timothy, and then, of course, in the address of this book. Uh, even though um, Titus was very active in the churches that the, uh, uh, that the Apostle Paul had started... He's never mentioned once in the books of Acts. Now, I find that quite striking that here in the book of Acts is the history of how all these churches got started and Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, Titus was around, but he's never mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts. Um, He's first mentioned um, or the first mention of Titus is after Paul and Barnabas were sent to the church at Jerusalem to see the apostles. Uh, Because in Antioch, they had some Judaizers were there who were saying that these new converts, these new Gentile converts, needed to be circumcised and follow the law. So uh, the church in Antioch sent a delegation to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, to the elders in Jerusalem. And so he takes along Titus. And uh, it says here that Titus was not compelled to, um, to be circumcised. And then later, when Paul goes on a second missionary journey, he gets to Troas and he says these words. He says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So even though Titus is mentioned here, in, uh, 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 that, was, that was in 2 uh, Corinthians, he's not mentioned in the book of Acts. He's not mentioned as part of the team that went with Paul at this time. And then in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, it says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoice even more. So evidently, uh, Paul had sent Titus, or left Titus in Corinth after he left to kind of take care of that church there. Now, we know that Corinth had a problem, and their problem had to do with immorality. It was a very carnal church. And so I I looked uh, at at Titus as kind of being Paul's troubleshooter. He was sent to these troubled churches to try to help them straighten out. Um, Let's see. uh, Paul... uh, uh, after Titus had come to Paul at that time, then he comforted him about what was happening in Corinth, and then Paul sent him back there. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 6, he says, so we urge Titus uh, that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So he sent him back to Corinth to complete the work that needed to be done there, um, <clears throat> As um, Titus was left to strengthen this uh, this troubled, immature church in Corinth, he was also then sent to the immature and troubled church in Crete. Whereas the church at um, Corinth was was worldly, the church in Crete seemed to be legalistic. In Titus 1, verse 10 and 14, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And then in verse 14, not paying uh, attention to Jewish mints and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So again, uh, just as a reminder, then Titus was Paul's troubleshooter. He went to Corinth to straighten up the carnality that was in that church. And then later he was sent to Crete to straighten up the legalism that was uh, apparent in that church as well. So, let's go to chapter 1. We'll just go ahead and read through this first chapter. You can follow along as I read. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is accordance to godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self will, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, nor fond of sordid game, <coughs> but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, devout, just, self control, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, <coughs> excuse me, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable uh, And disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now, tonight, as we get into God's Word here, I believe that God doesn't just give us His Word for nothing to entertain us. I think that God gives us His Word to change our lives. And I think that each time that we get into God's Word, that we should come with the idea that we're going to hear from Him, that He's going to speak to our hearts. That he might convict us of something that's going on in our lives that shouldn't, that challenge us to do things that perhaps that we're not. So tonight, I would like for each one of you to think about one takeaway that you are going to take away from the study in the book of Titus tonight, perhaps a commandment that God has given you or a challenge or um, <clears throat> maybe something, for a, a way to apply your faith in some specific ways. So as we're going through this passage tonight, I just challenge you just to, to be looking for what God is saying to you. And what he wants you to take away tonight. So let's begin here. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of truth, which is according to godliness. You know, this is uh, just many times we just kind of skim over these introductions to these books. Uh, But I'd like to just uh, briefly pause here as we uh, look at this introduction. So he talks about himself being a bondservant of God. That means that he was dedicated to volunteer his life to serve God. Uh, I think that we all of us need to look at our lives like that, all of us who are believers, because we have been redeemed by a price, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. He bought us. He redeemed us. So therefore, we belong to him. So with that in mind, I want you to be thinking You know, along these terms, uh, in your prayer to God, could be something like this. God, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Because that's what a servant would do, waiting to hear from his master. He says that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Paul uh, was called to function as an apostle, as a messenger of God. Um, This last week, as I was beginning this study in this passage right here, God used these verses in my life. Um, uh, Last year, um, I'd helped my son, who lives in Salem, build a house in Rockaway. It's a beach house. And uh, so now it's all done, and so he's renting it over the weekends. But during the week, it kind of just lays there, and nobody's using it. And he has offered to let us use his house during the week for no charge at all. And um, so, you know, that's kind of a cool thing. We can go to the beach and spend several days there and walk on the beach and Throw our ball for the dog to chase and, you know, just just hang out at the beach. It's kind of fun. And so anyway, I was thinking about doing that. And um, and then I remembered that I teach classes uh, at the Christian school on Thursdays. And I thought, well, um, how can I do that? I also teach a, a class on Monday nights. And so that means that if I would to go to the beach, I couldn't go until Tuesday morning. And then I would have to come back by Wednesday. So it would just kind of give us, you know, and it's like a two-hour drive there and a two-hour drive back. And it's not really kind of worth it just going down for that little bit of time. And I thought, well, you know, if I didn't have to teach that class on thir- those classes on Thursday at the Christian school, you know, then I could have, like, you know, the whole week to be there at the beach. And, I, you know, I seriously thought about giving up teaching those classes. And then I read this passage here where it says that Paul was called to be an apostle for Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, I don't think God has called me to be retired. (laughs) That's not my job, all right? I think he's called me to make disciples. And uh, so anyway, uh, as I looked at this, I realized that I could not do that. I could not just quit volunteering at the school. uh, Instead, you know, that I wasn't called to to do that, to quit that. And so anyway, what has God called you to do? You know, I I believe that God has a calling for every one of your lives. That he has called you to significance. That he didn't just create you just because he decided one day, I think it'd be fun to create this person. No, he created each one of us with a purpose. So what has God called you to do? He called Paul to be an apostle. He goes on to say... (coughs) um, um, an apostle of Jesus Christ for faith or according to faith of those chosen of God um, <coughs> uh, and the knowledge of the truth. You know, one of the things that, that God is is that he is a God of truth. Um, in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 21, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. As believers, we stand for the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says, I write so that you, may, uh, you will know that how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now listen to this. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You see, we as a body of Christ are the pillar and the foundation of truth in this world. We are God's mouthpiece here upon earth. And... Uh, <coughs> um, So we stand with this God of truth. We stand for the truth. Uh, Later here, we're going to talk about the fact that God cannot lie. You know, I thought about this for quite a bit because we live in a world of lies. Anybody heard any lies recently in the media? You know, uh, I, I just am astounded at some of the lies. But God cannot lie. So therefore, we as his representatives, can we lie? I don't think so. We cannot lie. But, you know, there's something else. I don't think we can condone lying either or lies, can we? You know, some people say that we have to go along with, you know, the way people look at themselves uh, in order to really love them and just to kind of be kind and nice to them. But, you know, in Proverbs, it says that a liar hates those that they lie to. And I think the same thing is true, is that we as believers, we have to stand for truth. We cannot say that we love someone and condone a lie that they are living. We can't do that. That's not love. God tells us in the Bible that we need to speak the truth in love. Verse 2, he says, in the hope of eternal life. Uh, Notice that this is not everlasting life. This is eternal life. Of course, we know that eternity, just the word itself, has no beginning and no end. But that's not what he's talking about here. And 1 John 1, 2, it says, And the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was manifested to us. In 5:11 he goes on to say, And the testimony is true that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. In uh, verse 20, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. God has given us eternal life because he has given us Jesus. And we have eternal life living within us because we have Jesus living within us. So that is eternal life. Eternal life is not just living forever, which we will when we have eternal life, but is having the Son of God living within us. Um, So he goes on to say here, uh, which God who cannot lie. So we've talked about the fact that God cannot lie. And he's made promises long ago. Does God keep his promises? Can God lie? No, so God's given us his promises, and his promises are found in the word of God, the Bible. And uh, we can rest our lives on the assurance of what it says. Uh, Verse 3, But at the proper time, he manifests even his word in the proclamation which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. So in the proper time, then God basically gave us the New Testament. He revealed uh, who Jesus Christ was at his coming. And uh, so uh, that's what he's talking about here in verse four to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So uh, he considered Titus as his true child in the common faith. So evidently, I believe that the apostle Paul led Titus to the Lord at some point. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, grace is unmerited favor. God gives us what we've never earned. And. Um, and he also does not give us what we do, what we have earned, which is the wages of sin is death. So grace and peace from God, our father and Christ Jesus, our savior. Jesus is our savior. I, I just when I even think about that, I almost get goosebumps coming up my back to think that he is my savior. He saved me. All right. Verse five, um, verses five through 9 gives us qualifications for elders. And remember that Titus has been sent to Crete to set in order the things that are there. So he's going to establish elders. So the first thing he says in verse 5, he says, But for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed to you. Uh, This is the stated purpose of the book. This is why he uh, went to Crete uh, to establish these churches. So an elder then... uh, The word elder, the word overseer, the word shepherd or pastor all refer to the same office. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, it says uh, from Miletus, uh, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church. And then in verse 28, he says, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and then to shepherd the church which he has purchased with his own blood. So these three words, the word elder, the word overseer, and the word shepherd, all refer to the same office. Verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So the first thing here is that he's above reproach. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but it does mean uh, that you can't point out any major character deficiencies in his life. He's above reproach. He's also the husband of one wife. Uh, One commentator said that there's three possible ways to take this, that first of all, he wasn't a polygamist, Uh, secondly, that he hadn't remarried after divorce, thirdly, that he did not have a second marriage after the death of his first spouse, and then fourthly, a man who is faithful and attentive to his wife and family. And I prefer that last interpretation. I think that is the the most literal. He's a one-woman man. He has eyes for only one woman. He's committed to his wife. And um, so also this, this is a whole list of character qualities. If this had to do with the fact that he had been married before and remarried, then uh, that would be a historic quality, not a character quality. So that fits in the context of what he's saying here. I remember in the first church that I had pastored, um, the, the patriarch of that church, I uh, had strong uh, feelings about this. That if a person had been divorced before, he could not be uh, an, an elder or a deacon. And um, uh, but as I, my understanding of Scripture is that this is a one-woman man. This is a man who's dedicated to his wife and is not doesn't have eyes that are looking around at other women. Verse. You, you don't have to agree with me, <laughs> but that's my take on what he's saying here. Having children who believe and not accuse of dissipation or rebellion. In First Timothy, uh, uh, Paul ties this ability to manage his own household with his ability to manage a church. Um, verse 7 says, For the overseer must be above reproach uh, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain." So uh, he must be above reproach as God's stewards. We've, uh, uh, and he is God's steward. You know, he does not own the church. The church is not his. Uh, the church belongs to Jesus. And by the church, we mean the people, the body of Christ. Um, this church is not Carrie's church. This church is not the elders' church. This church is Jesus' church. And uh, Paul uh, um, talked about the overseer is God's steward. He's God's manager, God's overseer. Uh, He looks out for and cares and shepherds the the church that belongs to Jesus. He's not self-willed. This is a compound term uh, from the word self and pleasure. So he's not self-pleasured. He doesn't do this for his own pleasure. He does it for the pleasure of the one he serves. So a true pastor, a true shepherd, is one who realizes he's, he's doing this for God. He's not doing this for himself. In Acts chapter 20, again, in verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. So this person is called by the Holy Spirit, and he's to shepherd the church which belongs to God, which he purchased with his own blood. You know, I believe that the most precious substance in all the universe is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can give eternal life. And Jesus Christ gave his blood to purchase the church. So if you are using the most precious thing in the universe to purchase something else, then that thing that you purchase must be very, very valuable. So I believe that we as the church are very, very valuable to God. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you. Um, You are extremely important to him. So he goes on to say, not (laughs) quick-tempered. Did you know that losing your temper is stupid? (laughs) You know, the most stupid things I've ever done is when I've lost my temper. You know why it's the stupidest thing? It's because you end up usually hurting the people you love the most. Now, how stupid is that? Anyway, so not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. I guess we don't need to go too much into that. He's not pugnacious. In other words, he's not uh, he's not a guy that likes to fight. Has a chip on his shoulder. Uh, he's not fond of sordid gain. That means he's not in it for the money. Uh, verse eight. But he's hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Um, he's hospitable. That word means a lover of strangers. You know, we get the opportunity to practice that every Sunday. Every Sunday when I come here, I see people that I don't know. I think it might be my age, you know, <laughs> but uh, maybe I've just forgotten. I usually forget their names, but um, we have the opportunity to be hospitable every Sunday or every Wednesday. You know, if you see somebody you don't know or you don't remember knowing or you don't remember their name, go up and introduce yourself. Be hospitable. Entertain strangers is the literal interpretation of that word. So entertain them. Uh, reach out to those and You know, I'm kind of an introvert, and it's kind of hard for me to do that, but through the years, with God's grace, I've been able to do it. But just reach out to others. Be hospitable. Entertain strangers, okay? Uh, He also loves what is good. Instead of uh, loving perverse things, he loves what is good. Uh, He is sensible. Uh, That means he avoids extremes. Um, He's reasonable. He's just. That means he's fair, and uh, he doesn't give favoritism. He's devout, and this reflects his relationship between duty toward God and duty toward men. So in um, the New Testament, it talks about devout Gentiles, and these were Gentiles who were seeking God through Judaism. So he is a God-seeker. And self-controlled, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Anybody here struggle with that one? I tell you, I do. Uh, Self-control, I think uh, I could be a lot more self-controlled than I am. You know, I could control what I eat better, I could exercise more, I could study more, I could... Anyway, so this, uh, he he is characterized by being self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So he's holding fast to the uh, faithful word of God. Uh, He believes in the errancy of scripture. He believes that it actually is the word of God. And he teaches it as if it's the most precious thing or precious knowledge that we have. Uh, he values what God's word says. Um, <clears throat> so he holds fast uh, fast the word of God. Um, so he's both able to exhort in sound doctrine. He's able to teach doctrine. So our pastors, our elders, they need to be able to teach God's word. They need to be grounded in God's word. Um, And then also, they may be able to refute those who contradict. So, they have to have a knowledge enough of God's word that they are able to teach it. And they're able to defend what it says against those who contradict. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So, there are many um, rebellious men, that is, those who refuse to submit to authority. they are empty talkers. That means that what they're saying is just kind of vain. They do not speak from the authority of the Scriptures, but from their world uh, perspective. They're deceivers. Um, They um, they just deceive. They don't tell the truth of God's word. Uh, And he says, especially those of the circumcision. So preaching uh, the necessity, they preach the necessity of works to be saved and to stay saved. So it's religion versus relationships. Verse eleven. And who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain? So these guys uh, must be muzzled. Um, so we, as elders of our church, we are very jealous about who speaks from this pulpit. Uh, because we want to protect uh, the word of God from being misused or um, uh, being attacked in any way. Uh, It says, because they are upsetting whole families. This probably relates to house churches uh, because, remember, Titus was sent to the churches in uh, Crete, and so whole churches were being upset by these false teachers, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They weren't in it because they saw themselves as uh, stewards of God's church or God's people. Instead, they were in it in order to serve themselves for sordid gain. So one of the aspects of being an elder is that they don't really care about money. That's not what they do, why they do what they do. It's because they, they want to serve God and they love God's people and they want to shepherd God's people. Verse 12, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You know, I, I look at that passage and that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? They're all... Uh, this... Well, uh, Cretans evidently were characterized as liars. As a matter of fact, one commentator stated that the word uh, Cretianus was meant a liar. So I guess the people in Crete had a, um, a reputation of being liars. And um, so, anyway, uh, that's just what it says. I don't understand that, but it does. They're lazy gluttons. They're slaves to their stomachs. Being obese is not necessarily sin, but the way people get obese is... Um, the primary key to overeating is um, is to call it sin and repent. So if God condemns a behavior, then obviously God will give us the ability to overcome it. We have to live by faith. Verse 13, this testimony is true for this reason. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. So the word severely here means to cut with a knife. In Proverbs 23, uh, 2, it says, Put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. So the purpose of discipline is always redemptive. It's not condemning. That they may be as sound in faith. That is why they were to be be reproved. Verse 14. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Uh, This has reference to the Jewish tradition of laws and taboos. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, it says, uh, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into the heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting or wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So these uh, Judaizers, of course, they had all these rules about food and, and uh, what is kosher and what is not. And Jesus himself says that those are man-made rules. They're not from God. He said that all foods were clean. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. If, um, if people are trying to teach you, that you can become righteous before God through good works and earning your way, then it says right here that these people are worthless of if for any good deed. Um, <clears throat> being detestable, the word detest literally means to be smelly. They stink, all right? Now, I didn't say it. God's Word said it, all right? And uh, disobedient and worthless for any uh, good deed, um, disobedience means unwilling to be persuaded and worthless for any good thing. Um, so this brings us to the end of chapter one and the qualifications for elder. Now, Paul lays out the Christian characteristics uh, for the rest of the church. So in chapter two, he's going to talk about duty, duties of the older and the younger, duties of Titus, duties of slaves and, and the purpose of duties. So let me read um, these 15 verses in verse, chapter two. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved uh, to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond servants to be subject to their own masters in everything, be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing. Of the the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So verse 1, he says, But as for you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine in contrast to these Paul's, doc, Paul's teachers that we just talked about. Uh, one com- commentator brought out the fact that Paul uh, was not addressing healthy doctor, doctrine, but it, uh, instead he was addressing moral behavior in this. So let's look at the duties uh, of the elderly and the younger. So older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and love and perseverance. Are there any elder men out here tonight? Okay, so this is for you, all right? This is for, I should say, us. (laughs) Okay, Um, so older men are to be temperate. That means they're uh, to be sober and um, uh, just, anyway, they're supposed to be sober. That's literally and then also mentally as well. They're to be dignified. That means to be reverent or respectful. So older men are to be respectful. They're to be sensible. That means they literally have a sound mind uh, the word sound mind is literally; it has the word salvation and from it they have to have a saved mind. So in First Corinthians two, verses fourteen through sixteen it says, "But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual praises all things, yet he himself is appraised of no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord?" that he would be instructed by him. But we have the mind of Christ. And I think that what the apostle is telling us as older men is that we have a saved mind, and we need to use that saved mind. That's the mind of Christ. Um, Sound in faith and love and perseverance. So we need to have a healthy faith, a healthy love, and a healthy perseverance. Uh, So you older guys, you just can't give up, all right? You've got to keep on going. Uh, Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So, the older women, then, are to be reverent in their behavior. They are to be respectful as well. Um, not malicious gossip. Uh, this word uh, malicious or gossip is where we get our word for diabolical. Uh, it means to slander, uh, <clears throat> So anyway, the older women then are not to be gossips. Um, I don't know. I think that's a problem that all of us have, isn't it? <laughs> that we have to struggle against not just older women. Paul also gave instructions to Timothy regarding, uh, in regards to younger widows. He says that the in. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verses 13 through 15. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely um, idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house and to give the enemy no occasion for uh, reproof. Uh, Verse 15, he says, uh, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. So they also are not to be enslaved by uh, much wine. So again, this talks about addiction. Uh, You know, wine is not the only addiction. We can have a lot of addictions today. And I think this probably by application refers to them all. Teaching what is good. Uh, They have to have a ministry of teaching. Why? Uh, Verse 4 says, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. So, um, this is what the older women's ministry should be, is to younger women, uh, he says. So, the word encourage here, where it says to encourage young women, uh, it's it's, um, the verb form of the word sensible in verse 2. So that they may have a saved mind... Um, the young women so that they may think like Christian young women and how to, and that's how they are to think. So that's what the older women are supposed to do is supposed to teach the younger women um, to be sensible or the word encourage means to, to have them be sensible to love their husbands and to love their children. Um, <clears throat> so this word here, love, it means affection. So it means that they are to have affection for their husbands and children. And... Um, And then it goes on and says, uh, verse five, it says, be sensible to be pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be dishonored. So they, too, must have the saved mind. They must be sober and sensible. They must be pure. That means free from defilement. They are to be workers at home. Uh, So does this mean that uh, younger women cannot work outside the home? Well, I think what he's talking about here is, is that um, the home is their primary calling. Is that they're called to be mothers, to love their husbands and their children. Uh, they also must be kind. Uh, that means that they must be benevolent and good. Uh, being subject to their own husbands. It means to arrange themselves under the authority of their husbands. Um, <laughs> Um, I believe that what that means is is that a a wife is to help her husband to become successful. She's to give herself to make him successful. And I think that's what it means for a wife to submit to her husband uh, as her head. Verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Isn't it interesting that there's only one thing that he tells young men to do? I think that, um, you know, that uh, there's only one injunction for him and... uh, that's because they, that's probably too complicated for them to do anything else. All right? So, um, um, let's see. Um, and, then, uh, and then he goes on and he says, now these are your duties, Titus. He says, in all these things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So he starts out here by saying, in all things. You know, in all that we do, we represent Jesus. And um, um, I think that, that people are, are very quick to point out ways that we fail. So anyway, that's our goal then, is in all things, show yourself to be an example. Um, in many ways, an elder does not have his own life. Uh, he lives for Jesus. He lives to be a good example. Of good deeds. Now, this is one of the things in the book of Titus that he talks about uh, several times about good deeds. Later, at the very end of the book, um, you know, he says this is a trustworthy uh, statement. There's no else, nowhere else in this book that he uses that concept of a trustworthy statement except in the area of good deeds. So, uh, good works. All of us should be involved in good works. Now, remember though, good works don't save us. We accomplish good works because we are saved, because we have a saved mind, because we have the mind of Christ. We look at Jesus Christ's life here upon the earth, and he good, good deeds. That's, that's good. We should uh, uh, replicate that as well. So good deeds are important for us. Um, you know, if we find ourselves idle, um, <clears throat> you know, then we could ask God, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve? Um, <clears throat> So it goes on to say, with purity and doctrine. Purity and doctrine is, um, is a doctrine that is not corrupt. You know, um, in my years of, of ministry and being a pastor, uh, you know, I come across different doctrines that were very difficult to understand. And sometimes you get the, I, you, you get this temptation to kind of do what I call hermeneutical gymnastics. In other words, you try to flip around the scripture some way so that it kind of makes more sense to you and makes it easier to apply. And then I learned that, you know, we really shouldn't do that. We should accept God's word by faith. And if we can't understand it, we just have to realize that, you know, God's a little bit smarter than I am, you know, and he uh, he has information that perhaps maybe I'll never understand. But I think a lot of it, though, is not just understanding it that we're talking about here but it's the application of it. Um, <clears throat> let me give you an example. Uh, in First Timothy 2.12, it says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or usurp authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Um, <clears throat> I remember in a church that I was in one time it, that they uh, decided that they should start ordaining women as pastors. And um, so um, I... Um, Looked at this one passage right here, but do not allow, I do not allow a woman to teach and usurp authority over men, but to remain quiet. And, you know, you should have seen the hermeneutical gymnastics they went through to try to get rid of this verse so they could ordain women. And, um, you know, I had to stand firm, you know, because there's no way that this can be interpreted any other way that I know of. And uh, so I think that's what he's talking about when he talks about purity of doctrine, uh, not long ago, I read this email or uh, on Facebook of a friend of uh, well he was actually a pastor that I had been mentoring years before. And so he had come to the conclusion that people will not stay in hell for eternity, but that God will give them a second chance. And so um, he sent this article about the lake of fire in Revelation 20 verse 15. It says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so he went through this whole thing about the lake of fire. Well, the word there, lake, it can be translated as pool. And what he's talking about here is, um, is a crucible and the melted um, ore that's inside. And God is refining that ore and he's taking out the chaff. And so after they've suffered for a while and they come to their senses that Jesus really is the Savior, then they can accept him after they've been thrown into the lake of fire. And, you know, you talk about... Hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get away from what the scripture clearly teaches, and uh, so anyway, I went back and I did a little bit of research, and I found that the word lake there, the only place it's ever used is as in reference to the to the, here the lake of fire, and also to the lake of Galilee. That's the only two places it's found in scripture. That's certainly not a little pool in a crucible to melt molten uh, iron. So anyway, what I'm saying is is that. Uh, that we have to teach pure doctrine. What does the word of God say, not what, what do I want it to say? Okay? So uh, we have to to believe what God has said in his word, and we have to live with the purity of what is said in his word. So he goes on to say, um, let's see, uh, with purity and doctrine, dignified. And then verse eight, verse 8 Verse eight, sound in speech, which is beyond reproof. So these have to be healthy words of speech, not corrupt or perverse, words that uh, cannot be condemned, that they are the truth. So um, so that the opponent will not be put, so the so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So who is this opponent? Well, it can be anyone who tries to challenge the authority of God's word. But I wonder if it is not the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before Jesus in heaven. And so we do not we uh, uh, we want this opponent to be put to shame. So next he talks about the duties of slaves. Verse nine, he says, urged um, bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be uh, um, well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Um, we don't have slaves today, or at least well, there's a lot of slaves today, but we don't have any in our churches. I, and, uh, so anyway, I, I, by application, I would say that um, the slave here is a person who basically sells his time to an employer uh, to do some kind of work for that employer. So I think the principles are the same. So you might say, I urge employees to be subject to their own employers and everything, To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So notice here that he says in everything um, to be well-pleasing and uh, to not be argumentative. You know, when your boss tells you to do something, just do it. Don't say that, well, I did it the last time or it's his turn or whatever. Just do it. Uh, Not pilfering. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, i read an article once about the millions of dollars every year that were pilfered from employers. And so anyway, you're taking a pen or whatever it is, not pilfering, uh, but showing all good faith, showing that one can be trusted, the employer can have confidence in them. And then he goes on and he talks about um, the purpose of these duties. He says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. In other words, that God will look good. By what we do, isn't that great? Is that we have the opportunity to make God look good in the the world's eyes? For for the faith of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We want to make God look good so that people will accept Jesus as their Savior. Does that make sense? So that's why uh, we live that type of life. Um, The grace of God again is unmerited favor. It's a, a undeserved gift. It's a pardon. Uh, that the grace of God has appeared. Uh, The word there, appear, means epiphany. So um, I think it's kind of a miraculous thing, that salvation. um, I think it takes a work of God for a person to see their need for Jesus. And um, so anyway, uh, which bringing salvation to all men, God's grace is available to all, but only those who believe receive it. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So, um, um, God's word then does instruct us uh, in godliness, and, um, and he says to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We live in a very ungodly age, but in the midst of that, we as believers are to live godly lives. Um, <clears throat> verse 13, looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So um, we are looking for that blessed hope. And I think that all of us have our eyes on Israel today. And we see the stage being set for uh, the time of the great tribulation to come. And if you are a pre-tribulationist, you believe that Jesus, uh, the rapture will happen before that great time. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting ready to take off here anytime, <laughs> all right? Jesus is coming uh, to meet us in the air. Um, <clears throat> verse 13. Oh, wait a minute. Let's see. That's one thing I forgot here I was going to bring out. Um, okay, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some, um, some commentators uh, want us to believe that Jesus is not God. And that they're talking about God, and then they're talking about uh, Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice that, uh, first of all, that we're talking about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I think that he's talking about uh, the same person, our great God who is Jesus, uh, our Savior Jesus Christ. But um, only Jesus is uh, talked about appearing in Scripture. The Father is never talked about his appearing But over and over, we have Jesus who will appear again. And uh, next, as we get down to verse 14, it says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us uh, from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Only Jesus gave himself to redeem us. God the Father didn't. And so I think that uh, this is a verse that we can use to prove that Jesus was indeed God himself. He wasn't just a good man. Uh, Or anything like that. He was indeed God himself. Uh, Verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. We have the word of God. And we can have confidence in the word of God that it is true. And that it is powerful. And that it is uh, uh, that we have the authority of God's word. And he says, let no one disregard you. Um, This is a negative imperative. And... um, uh, so basically what he's saying here literally is says, let no one think around you. Uh, so in other words, uh, disregard who you are. You are God's spokesman. You are speaking from God. You're speaking from his word. You're speaking with authority. So that brings us to chapter three and we have five and a half minutes to get it done. All right. So, um, chapter 3, we'll go through verse by verse. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, uh, to be ready for every good work. So, the word remind them here is a present imperative, and it means that you just keep reminding them to do this. Keep reminding them uh, to be subject to authorities and rulers. Why do you think that we need to be continually reminded to submit to authority? Anybody here have a problem with authority? I have to raise my hand. Okay. So we, we continually remind them then to submit to authority. Verse 2. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So this is an attitude that we are to have toward all. Um, uh, my wife, she has this saying uh, that when someone says something or does something that's kind of offensive, she says, well, we just uh, go about business as usual. You know, we don't hold it against them. Uh, We just we just go on just like it never happened before. And I think that's the kind of the meaning here uh, in this verse as well. Um, Showing consideration for all men. Verse three, uh, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved in various lusts and pleasure, spending our life in malice, envy, uh, hateful, hating one another. You know, it's almost like we're reading the newspaper here, isn't it, about the things that are taking place today. Um, <clears throat> verse 4, and by the way, that's the way that we used to be. Uh, as I look back on my life before I became Christ, that's, that's the description, that's God's description of who I was. Uh, verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, um, by his kindness, God wooed us into his kingdom. And I look at my own testimony and I think back uh, when someone shared the four spiritual laws with me. Law one is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I thought, if that is that really true? I'd never heard anything so good in my life. I always thought of God as just being this God waiting for me to step out of line. And I had stepped out of line plenty of time and he was going to zap me. And that was my, I pictured an angry God up there ready. To, and I deserved it. I deserved his anger and his wrath because I was a sinner. And um, But anyway, in kindness, you know that God loves you. God wants you. You know, um, when I was heard that, that God wanted me, uh, I'd never heard such good news in my life. And so, anyway, that's what he's talking about here. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, verse 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So he saved us not based upon the deeds which we had done. Um, <clears throat> if he would have saved us by the deeds which we have done, none of us would have been saved because our deeds weren't worthy of being saved. Um, so, but according to his mercy, uh, instead, um, uh, his salvation was based upon our need. Whenever you look at the word mercy in Scripture, it's always pointing to the need of mankind and how God had mercy on us we were so needy before we came to Christ. We could not help ourselves. We could not save ourselves. We were totally lost. We were irredeemable in our own selves. And God redeemed us because he looked down upon us in compassion and saw how needy we were. And in his mercy, he saved us. He says the process was by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> Regeneration is a miracle. Regeneration is not something that we do. It is something that God does. Lewis Berry Schaefer said, I think there's 31 things that happened immediately the moment we put our trust in Jesus. It was a miracle. Things like our names were written in the book of life. that He gave us a new nature. He gave us the mind of Christ. Our sins were removed. We became God's children. The Holy Spirit came to live within us. Uh, those are miraculous things that only God could do, and um, <clears throat> so by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, when a person is saved, a miracle takes place. He is born, and that spiritual birth is every bit as real as our physical birth. Uh, <clears throat> in Second 2 Corinthians 2:17, 2, it says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature." Notice it doesn't say that he is a revived creature. He's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Um, Verse 6, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The moment we believed, we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So isn't that amazing that by grace we have become heirs of eternal life? Remember, this is not just living forever. This is the life of Christ in us. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good works. These are good and profitable for men. Now, again, I want to remind you that this is the only place where he says this is a trustworthy statement. That we as believers should be engaged in good works. Um, Verse 9, but avoiding foolish uh, controversies and genealogies and strife strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There are some arguments that are not worth arguing. And that's what he's talking about here. I hear that alarm going off, okay. Uh, Reject a factitious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, uh, being self-condemned. So there are some that we are to excommunicate, and he tells us who those are. And then he finishes up here in verses, the last uh, uh, four verses. When I ascend Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace to you all. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, again, we just want to thank you for this book and thank you for the instruction that gives us. Thank you for the picture that it gives us and how we should live. So, Lord, I just pray for each one of us here tonight that we might take something away, something that we will change in our lives, a conviction that you've given us that we will make a commitment to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: In the study of God's word with Pastor Kerry Wacker, we'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 10:45 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6:30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and Saint Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.